And I think literally every person should eat as if they were pregnant because it's such a beautiful way to, to connect to your body and to connect to the world outside of you and how those two interact. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Up To Some Good. I'm your host, Claudia. Up To Some Good is a podcast that spotlights sustainably minded entrepreneurs and change makers. Season two of the podcast is all about food. I'll be speaking to guests about how they're building food businesses that improve our environment and uplift global communities. This podcast is sponsored by Mission Kitchen. Mission Kitchen is a shared workspace built to support up-and-coming food entrepreneurs in London. It offers flexible memberships that give you access to commercial kitchens, a co-working space, and inspiring events. More than 100 exciting food startups now call it home. So if you run a growing food business and you're looking for a kitchen where you can upgrade your production or product development, or a workspace where you can connect with other founders, you really should check out Mission Kitchen. Check out their website to arrange a tour at missionkitchen.org. Today, my guest is Alyssa Timoshkina, who is a mother, food writer, cookbook author, founder of supper club Kino Vino, and also a historian. This is definitely a good one, and we covered so much ground, including topics like how food can be used as a medium to unite, the importance of eating in a way that suits your body, and also women's nutrition, all topics that I am very interested in and also quite personal to me. Before that, here's a bit about my guest. Alyssa was born and raised in Russia and moved to the UK to study in the late 1990s. She studied film as an undergraduate in university and then pursued this further by doing a PhD in the niche but fascinating medium of Soviet Holocaust cinema. At the same time, she has always had a deep interest in food and in 2014, she decided to leave her career in the art sector to launch Kino Vino, a supper club where a group of people screen a film together and then enjoy a curated meal based on the film. And in 2019, she released her first cookbook, Salt and Time, a very poetic cookbook about Russian cuisine which features sometimes unfamiliar dishes like Soviet Korean ceviche. During the pandemic, Alyssa launched her podcast, Mother Food, where she speaks to women forging inspiring careers in food, nutrition, and wellness. I think this is one of the most soulful conversations I've had this season, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Hi, Alyssa. Welcome to Up to Some Good. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. I've been following your content ever since I arrived in London, actually, and also meaning to buy your cookbook. So I'm very excited that you're joining me here today to talk all about food, sustainability, and wellness. So first, I want to start off with talking about your food experience while growing up in Siberia. What was the food culture and food scene like there? It's actually very much connected to the question of sustainability. Although we came to that lifestyle out of a more problematic, I would say, periods of living rather than an informed, conscious decision. So I was born in the early 80s in Siberia, in Russia, in the Soviet era. And as I'm sure we all know, life in the Soviet Union was not particularly bountiful in terms of everything, really, from access to food to personal freedoms, access to information and so on. But in a weird way, looking at it from today's perspective, and especially from the questions of sustainability and food consumption and kind of general consumption of things, it was actually quite a balanced life. And in a weird way, the lack of food and the sparsity of food brought a real respect for it. And when people did cook, they really did plan their meals. Perhaps they were not the most 
elaborate and diverse dishes that we would have in our kitchens. It would be a very limited repertoire of things, but it would always be seasonal. It would always be using up everything that you have in the kitchen because you simply can't afford to waste food. And personally, I don't remember having bad meals, of course, partly because as a child you have a really simple and because of that a beautiful vision of the world, but also because my mother and my grandmother and also my great-grandmother, they were really good cooks and they always prepared food with love and with passion. And so my food memories are always connected to the women in my family and to simple but very nourishing and very fulfilling food and also yeah living with seasons and the food really would change the stuff that you eat would change depending on the weather outside i love that you said that it's because the idea of sustainability also means that we should be working alongside nature and that we don't force anything sometimes it's not about whether you consume eating seafood but not consuming it in a way that is excessive and making sure that what you consume is not extracted in a way that is extremely detrimental to the environment and the communities around it. And I also know that in Russian culture, fermentation is common because of the scarcity of food during the winters. You don't really have access to as much food, and because of that, you ferment and pickle food to preserve it. So can you tell me about the types of fermented food that you grew up eating? Of course, yeah. Fermentation is a really big part of Slavic food culture and obviously cultures that are reared in colder climates. So it's not obviously just Russian, Slav, Ukrainian, Polish traditions, but they are very important in the culture that I come from. And it's been there as far as 13th, 15th century. It was really one of the most common and most accessible ways of processing food, of cooking food. And the key ingredient that is fermented most commonly is, of course, cabbage. There's a lot of sauerkraut. And usually it would be flavored very simply with some grated carrot, maybe a caraway seeds or fennel seeds. And then if you have fresh dill, then you would use fresh dill in that as well. So that would be the key thing that you would have. And then, of course, we now know the benefits of fermentation, the amount of essential gut bacteria, the amazing minerals and vitamins, and so many wonderful, nutritious things are born within that jar. And I also just want to stress that, of course, back in the day, no one had that understanding. And maybe I'm making it sound like there was such a beautiful, life it was all sustainable and there was food preservation of course it was all done out of complete lack and, and complete necessity it was quite grim food situation so people did that almost out of spite they hated the fact that they had to like spend days <laughs> preserving stuff and they couldn't have access to something else that they wanted to eat so there was that element too of course but yeah i guess it's a really complex thing on on the one hand we tend to over romanticize it on the other hand we tend to demonize it and of course the kind of the reality somewhere in the middle so making sauerkraut was something that was a very common thing and people did it not because they really valued this whole kind of beautiful relationship between seasons and gut bacteria they just had to do it that was just part of the soviet routine yeah. but also mushrooms that was quite a big thing and yeah so foraging for mushrooms was quite a big part of the seasonal calendar and i remember going to local woods so where i come from there's a huge 
kind of empty spaces just outside the city where you can just drive for 40 minutes and you find yourself in the middle of the woods, completely wild. And you can forage for mushrooms if you know what you're doing. You can really collect an amazing bounty of different mushrooms for free. <laughs> and then we would cook with them. There's so many things you can do with mushrooms. Obviously, you would make lots of different soups and then you would freeze those for the winter. But another thing is pickling, pickling mushrooms and fermenting mushrooms. So it just seems like you've been brought up with such a sustainable mindset when it comes to food. But right now in many metropolitan cities, food is so much more abundant and people don't really feel the need to prepare or to preserve food anymore because it's basically everywhere. And that is one of the reasons why food is so often wasted and less respected. How do you think we can get people back to a place where they have a much stronger connection with their food and appreciate how much effort it is for the farmers and the growers to really grow these foods from the soil yeah definitely and it's a problem now and it has been a huge problem in post-soviet russia obviously it's only natural that when you've been deprived of something for so long once it's become available there's an over access and there's an over kind of eagerness to consume for example the horrible plastic bag which back when i was a kid you would literally treasure a plastic bag like it's some kind of like it's a Chanel bag almost and it was it was cool to have a plastic bag there would always be like and it wouldn't be single use obviously right no it would be like those thicker the ones you pay for in the shops now like a more sustainable one and you would wash it and dry it and really look after it and it would be your bag to go shopping with whereas now of course plastic bag is wrapped in another bag and, and it's just everything is packaged in plastic and the amount of food waste and use of plastic and complete lack of understanding of sustainability and the environmental impact of our food practices is quite devastating the way things are in Russia right now. Wow, I see. So going back to your childhood, what was your favorite childhood meal? Did you cook with your family often? Oh gosh, so many. I think something super simple like a mushroom soup. I mean, as a mother myself now, you know, kind of have a much better understanding of kids and appetites and what determines their choices. But there's this kind of general understanding that kids don't like vegetables, which is, of course, not. It's a complete misconception that we feed into ourselves. Does your daughter like vegetables? Yes. <laughs> so I love mushrooms. I know there are lots of kids who find them weird. I guess the texture or the sight of it, you know, it's brown, kind of mushy, chewy thing, maybe. But I absolutely loved mushroom soup. And is Russian mushroom soup more creamy or more stock-based? So it's chunky vegetables in a clear broth. And then you would either have it... You would have it as a soup with a slice of rye bread and lots of fresh herbs in the summer and autumn. And then when there are no fresh herbs, you would have like frozen herbs or maybe something fermented. Like you would also ferment tomatoes and cucumbers. So that would be used a lot in cooking. You would make really hearty soups which almost like a stew, so it'd be lots of grains, fermented ve- vegetables, and some kind of a stock. That honestly just sounds so nourishing and wholesome. It does, actually, yeah. <laughs> so food is actually a medium that combines your different interests, including culture, film, and nutrition. Can you tell me more about your fascination with food? Why is food such a powerful medium to evoke change? Yeah, food is, to me, the most fascinating phenomenon because it really does allow us to tap into pretty much every aspect of our lives 
personally, I'm really fascinated in food from the perspective of history and culture and politics, especially right now with the current crisis in Ukraine caused by Russia, how that is affecting our food choices and how that is affecting the global food market. But also I love food as a creative medium where you really allow your creativity to flourish and it's something that involves all of your senses. So I, since I was a kid, I was really experimenting with different kind of creative outlets from photography to painting to theater and dance. And I found that in food, you combine all of those, maybe not dance, unless you like dance when you cook, but like it really does allow you to experience your creative energy on so many different levels. But also, of course, there's a social and environmental aspect and also a nutritional aspect, which is so fascinating in the way there's this really beautiful and really complex connection between our bodies and the food that we put into them. But yet it's so intuitive and it's so natural. There's this kind of almost uncanny internal wisdom that allows us to choose food with that kind of knowledge without really understanding why we're choosing a certain dish or a certain ingredient. So there's so many fascinating entry points into the world of food and precisely because it's so diverse it's a lifelong relationship you can always move from one to another but never lose interest in the core in the food itself yeah i love that i love that you just mentioned how much you can learn about the world and connect with different people through food that's why i love watching shows like chef's table because it's not just about the restaurant and the chef or a dish it's about culture and values and community so after moving to the uk do you think that your relationship to russian food has changed at all has it strengthened because you now use food to relate with your culture and connect to your own homeland yeah for sure it's been a really fascinating experience to move away from a place where you're born and it really has changed my relationship not just to food but to so many things in my sense of self, in terms of national belonging, my sense of connection to this quote-unquote notion of motherland or homeland. And of course, food plays a really big part in that. And I think moving away from home was also something that inspired me to start cooking myself. And I think that's a very common thing, having heard other food writers who have a similar kind of trajectory, essentially immigrants, how that move inspires a very new, very interesting, fulfilling relationship to the food of their country. And yes, so it has been a really big turning point in my life. And I think especially, of course, working on my cookbook, that is something that has allowed me the time and the privilege to really delve into the recipes of my childhood, the recipes of a place that we call Russia, with all its very confusing and problematic borders and borderlines yeah and it's definitely a relationship that continues to be at the center of everything i do really especially with the recent tragic events of the war in ukraine the question of my own sense of self and the kind of the food that i cook and the the role that food then plays in defining myself and my family has really been something that i've been thinking about so i've been following the campaign from the very start And I've just been so inspired by your efforts to raise money for UNICEF. And I know that you've raised over 1.3 million for UNICEF through 
a variety of supper clubs, bake sales, and recipe books. Can you tell us more about the campaign and how it started? The idea came about quite organically on the 24th of February when Russia invaded Ukraine. But actually it has roots in my friendship with Olya and our work for the last seven years. We tend to think of the war in Ukraine as starting this year on the 24th of February, but actually, of course, the conflict has been there for a very long time, and the actual war has begun with the annexation of Crimea eight years ago. And that was the time, just as a coincidence, that was the time when Olya was about to launch her new, for her debut cookbook, Mamushka, and I started my supper club, Kino Vino. And one of the first events that I did for Kino Vino was a Ukrainian-themed supper club celebrating the launch of Olya's first book, but also an event to raise awareness about the war in Crimea and raise awareness about Ukrainian culture through food. So that was the first event that we've done back in 2015. And since then, we've cooked together on so many occasions, both for private family celebrations and, of course, for various supper clubs and kind of public events. So when the war, kind of the most aggressive part of the war started in back in February, Olya and I knew immediately that we will come together again to use food as a way to raise funds and raise awareness about the crisis. And back then it was also very important for us to show that we stand together as symbolically representing the two countries. And since then, the campaign has really grown so much. And a huge thank you goes to an amazing team who started a mind-blowing <laughs> campaign, Cook for Syria, back in 2016. And essentially Cook for Ukraine was inspired by that because both Olya and I have participated in Cook for Syria campaign in various ways. And we knew the people behind it, mainly the clerk and boy, an amazing Instagram food yeah. personality. So I reached out to him and initially just wanting some advice on how he started Cook for Syria. But being the amazing warm-hearted person that he is he said let's just work together I'm going to put the same team together that worked on cook for Syria and let's just do it all together and literally within I think 24 hours of talking to him and having this idea in the first place we've launched the campaign and the support was absolutely overwhelming and it's really humbling to see just how important this crisis is for the rest of the world, that people really do understand the global implications of the war in Ukraine, that it's not just a local kind of little war that's happening between two countries. It's a really a global crisis that's affecting us all. And I'm so grateful for thousands of people who came together to support the campaign. Yes, it's such a beautiful campaign. And it's still ongoing, right? Yeah, we are... Unfortunately, we're still here in the midst of a crisis and we're determined to keep going way past the war ending because the devastation that's been done to Ukraine obviously will take years to repair and Ukraine will need our support through that as well. Yeah, and I think the campaign sends such a beautiful message of unity between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And I love how you and Oli's friendship is a symbol of that. 
With the crisis, many people have shunned Russia as like the enemy in very black and white terms, and many Russians abroad have also been quite negatively affected by this. But in reality, as you mentioned before, the two countries' borders are very porous, and the communities are very well connected. So it's very difficult to talk about this in black and white terms, or designate one as good and the other as bad. This actually reminds me of discussions related to the sustainable food movement and what type of food system can best maintain food security while preserving the environment. When it comes to this, there is this divide between those supporting commercially produced. Plant-based proteins like Impossible and Beyond Meat, and also those that are advocating for more regenerative and organic farming practices. But I think that it doesn't always have to be that way because you can integrate and combine the two methods in a way that makes food systems work for different communities. So I definitely digress a little, but my point is that I am very much inspired by the way. You use food to unite and connect instead of to emphasize the differences. Just to say something about the unity between Russia and Ukraine. That, whereas that was our initial idea on the very first day of the war, as the war developed and as we have more news and more responses from Russia, not just the government but the people as well. Of course, that whole notion of unity became very problematic. Actually, extremely unethical because the word Russia and the presence of a Russian person is a really traumatic, triggering thing for Ukrainians at the moment, which I completely understand. I think eventually the project has shifted to really emphasize Ukraine and celebrate Ukraine and give that country. A voice and the focus, and but also, of course, it's also important to remember that just how complex and how intertwined the relationship between the two countries is, and maybe how problematic in general it is to pigeonhole people into national categories. Personally, I come from a family of Ukrainian Jews. Part of my family is from Ukraine of Jewish background, who then moved to Russia. Olya has a Russian grandmother, and we're just two people out of millions who share a similar family history. So I think just the complexity of this conflict is, of course, so profound, and the role that people feel they play in it, whether they represent one side or the other, of course, shouldn't be pigeonholed to a national label. And I think that's why food is such a beautiful and a very productive medium to. Explore these questions because no dish is single-handedly belonging to one place, and each dish has it's fluid. It's that's what's so beautiful about food that it it doesn't have a physical border. You cannot place food behind a border and give it a passport and say you're not allowed to pass. And that's I think that's something that we hope. Presents a message of potentially, hopefully, unity, but also a message of borderless culture and society. So that's where the campaign is at the moment. That's so beautiful. Thank you for reminding us of that. And I so agree with you that nobody should be defined by their ethnicity and their cultural background because everyone's background is faceted and so complex and layered. Ethnicity is just one very small part of anybody's character and personality. This. 
also reminds me of something you said during the Table Talk podcast, which I listened to recently. I basically heard you say that in Siberia, you eat a lot of dumplings, which you often eat either with cream, yogurt, or soy sauce. And the fact that you use soy sauce as a dipping sauce is affected by China because the two countries' borders are very close. I was quite surprised to find out that soy sauce is also used to dip dumplings in Siberia because I always thought that was a very Chinese practice. But in fact, that might not even be the case. It may have been that Siberia began this practice and and China was influenced by Siberia. Again, my point is that food culture is very fluid, which reflects the bigger theme of how fluid our own cultural identities are as well. And like you rightly said, ethnicity should not be a defining factor because it really doesn't say anything about one person. This is actually the perfect time to move on to your supper club, Kino Vino, a medium which you use to put people together. Can you tell me about how the supper club started and how it works? To me, it was always important to show the film first and have the event run in that specific order. After you've seen the film, then you then sit down at the table and it's such a beautiful way to meet people. It's a wonderful conversation opener and it's hopefully inspires really interesting chats between people, whether you've come with a group or not, especially if you bond with people whom you haven't met before. And that kind of just amplifies the ability of food and sharing food to bring people together and to hopefully create new connections. Each separate club would have a guest chef and a different, a new menu and a new film. Do you have a favorite supper club? I'm sure it's difficult to choose because each one must take so much preparation and creative collaboration between you and the chef. Yeah, there are lots. Yeah, all of them are very special. Yes, precisely because they take a lot of effort and love and energy. But I think in my own kind of experience or in my own journey through all of this, one of the most special ones was actually a charity one that I have hosted together with Cook for Syria campaign. And that supper club was in the memory of a very dear friend of mine, who was killed in Syria. He was a filmmaker. He was there. He was Kurdish, a London-based Kurd filmmaker who went there to film the Kurdish resistance and to support his Kurdish community. He was killed there. So it was a really meaningful and very special event. And again, just reminded of how big a role both food and film can play in bringing people together, but also making in determining social change and being an agent in hopefully creating a better world. I absolutely agree with you and I'd love to attend one of the Kino Vino Supper Clubs whenever you start hosting them again. So apart from using film and food to connect with people through your supper clubs, you also have a podcast called Mother Food where you talk to mothers about nutrition wellness and their experience as mothers and how they balance this with their health and careers. How are you using the podcast to further share your awareness about food culture and nutrition? That podcast came as a very deeply personal thing because when I had my daughter I really did struggle in the beginning to feed myself well. Was this during the pregnancy or after the pregnancy? After. During the pregnancy, actually, I had the most wonderful time because I was working on my first cookbook 
And so I was completely immersed in cooking and cooking dishes from my childhood. And I was recently looking through my library of pictures just to see what things I was eating. And there were lots of really beautiful, fresh, balanced dishes. And I was really impressed. But then actually, once I had the baby, it was a completely different experience. And I really struggled. Also, it has to be said that both my partner and I are not from the UK. We don't have any family here. So we literally had zero support. It was just the two of us with a newborn baby, completely shell-shocked. And I was surprised that it was that big of a struggle for me, for someone who is professionally connected to food, who is very interested in nutrition. And, and then I wondered what was it like for other women who are also professionally connected to food how did they find that experience of transitioning into motherhood and where did food fit into that and that's how the podcast initially I thought it would just be a series of blog posts interviews but actually during the pandemic I had all this free time and people really craved connection and interaction so I thought it was a perfect time and the perfect medium to do it as a podcast. Can you tell us more about the difficulty you experienced postpartum? Is this because your taste in food changed or because of other uh, physical health issues that you had? A whole host of reasons, mostly for energy levels. I literally did not have any energy or any kind of creativity to even think what I could eat. There was a point where we would just go to Waitrose and buy ready-made meals or like falafel and hummus and I mean there's nothing wrong with that it was still relatively healthy stuff but I was just shocked that I didn't want to cook or didn't know what to cook and also having the time to do it I think that was the key thing that was the problem for me and often I ended up not having wholesome enough meals that was a real kind of emotional challenge for me because food is such an amazing nourishing emotionally nourishing outlet for me and I completely suddenly found myself numb and lost in the kitchen. Wow that must have been so difficult and so through the conversations with other mothers did you fully figure out what the problem was and then reconnect with your passion for cooking and for eating nourishing food? So I had my baby in November 2018 and then I started the podcast in March 2020 so there was a gap between those two moments and obviously in those 18 or so months I have gradually managed to get my cooking mojo back it probably took about four to six months to get into it and then I really really started enjoying this new uh, relationship to food it was something that I already knew when I was pregnant because suddenly you realize that you're not just responsible for yourself, but there's another life that you're responsible for. And every choice that you make impacts not just you, but another person as well. And that makes you a, a lot more responsible eater. And I think literally every person should eat as if they were pregnant. Because <laughs> it's such a beautiful way to, to connect to your body and to connect to the world outside of you and how those two interact. And I think to me, it was some kind of a, I know it sounds really woo to say it's like a spiritual awakening, but it was some kind of an awakening for me, that experience of having grown another life in my body to, yeah, to really reconsider my own relationship to myself and where I am in relation to the rest of the natural world because it's such a natural kind of animalistic experience that you start thinking of yourself, a very humbling one that you think of yourself as an animal that's part of nature. 
Actually, hearing you talk about spiritual awakening, I remember this is what attracted me to your content in the first place because I feel that food is a very spiritual medium and you connect with it on a deeper level. And it also helps you to connect with yourself on a deeper level. But I feel that this is an issue nowadays because there is so much processed food in, in cities at least. And it takes us away from the deeper connection with ourselves and with nature. I think people who live in cities are time poor and prefer to take the easy route when it comes to eating. They either order takeaway or buy ready-made meals or use meal prep subscription boxes. Also, unfortunately, high-quality food is sometimes more expensive, depending, of course, on which city you're based in and where you look. So it makes it quite hard to eat wholesome all the time. As a food writer and food lover, do you have any easy nourishing recipes you would recommend that are also quite cost effective more generally i would also say that the two things that i find really important in my own relationship to food one of them is knowledge and now there's so many amazing and easily accessible resources where you can read a little bit about where your food comes from and even just the packaging these days is very straightforward about it and there's so much advice on how you read the labels and how you understand the contents of what you get and I'm referring here obviously to ready-made meals there's no packaging that should be on lettuce or any of those things so there's one aspect of knowledge and empowering yourself with knowledge and making informed decisions, but also kindness to yourself and not beating yourself up if you make, quote-unquote, the wrong decision when it comes to food. Because as you rightly say, we're, we're busy, especially as parents, and making healthy food choices is also such a financial privilege. Not everyone, unfortunately, wholesome healthy food is a lot more expensive and takes perhaps going to a farmer's market or going to a supermarket at a higher price points is not something that everyone can afford so I would say being kind to yourself and understanding that you can't always make those perfect again in quotation marks choices and when it comes to specific dishes like the one thing that I have learned when I started delving more into nutrition for women's health is it's not more about the dishes but it's how you choose your dishes and how you put a meal together and I know it's been said so many times and I just want to emphasize that again, that vegetables should be the key hero ingredients in your cooking. And actually, I used to be a vegetarian for a very long time. And once I've become a mother, my body just needed me, animal protein. I've realized that I just can't sustain myself and breastfeed my child. So I made a very deliberate choice to eat meat again. Of course, an informed decision, choosing meat from a good source and not eating too much of it. So I think that's a key advice. And I'm a big fan of Michael Pollan and his books and his writing. And he has the most wonderful advice in one of his books, which I think should be pinned on a kitchen cabinet somewhere in every kitchen, which is eat real food mostly vegetables and not too much meat. <laughs> That's the key thing that I, I have been following. And it really does, you can just sense that it works, makes the perfect kind of sense for your body and it really does work. Yes, what you said about not being able to sustain your body on a plant-based diet while you're pregnant is actually really interesting because... A lot of people nowadays, the plant-based trend is has just blown up 
and a lot of people have become plant-based for ethical and environmental reasons, which I really respect. And I always believe that if this is not something that energizes you and, and gives you energy to sustain your day-to-day activities, then it's almost ironic because then you won't have enough energy levels to continue showing up as your best self and continue doing whatever good it is that you're doing for this world. And the reason I'm also sharing this is because I have been eating primarily plant-based after I moved to London. And I did feel like my circulation is not as good and my energy levels have also plunged a little while eating plant-based. And it may be because I'm not used to this yet, but I'm also now flexitarian and adding some fish back into my diet just because I think my energy levels are much better when I do this. What would you say to people who do want to eat plant-based, but perhaps nutritionally that might not be the best thing for them to do? I think it's really important to, when we talk about sustainability and healthy eating, and by healthy, the one that's healthy for the whole ecosystem of this world, we tend to think that vegan food is healthy, but actually chips is vegan, but it's fried in hydrogenated oil which is really not good for your body because technically that's not real food there's so many meats plant-based meat substitutes that are highly processed and filled with so many flavorings and all sorts of things that your body simply would not even recognize as real food and therefore will respond very differently to that and also just to highlight that and i don't want to be divisive or heteronormative here but people with female bodies have very different nutritional needs to people with male bodies and it actually in a very narrow-minded sexist ways we're brought up thinking that women should eat less and men should eat meat it's a very male thing to eat meat but actually it's completely different women who have a far more complex sense of their bodies because of their menstrual cycles because of their ability to bear children they actually do need a very different diet which needs to be a lot more protein rich and fat rich than the diets of people with different bodies it's also really important to remember that one particular culinary lifestyle does not fit everyone mm-hmm, absolutely I agree with what you're saying, and I also feel that your upbringing and ethnicity affects what type of food makes you feel nourished. When I eat rice, compared to other carbs, I really do feel a lot more energized and satiated more quickly. Do you think our genetics comes into the type of food we feel better eating? Yeah, I think that's true, and there's definitely some kind of genetic memory of the comfort that you get, which also obviously the emotional aspect of eating is another huge important topic. That also nourishes you on so many other levels, and of course, now there's so much fascinating research into kind of the individual experience of eating, and hopefully there's already some work being done on creating literally tailor-made diets for a person based on their genetic makeup, ethnic, lifestyle, and so on. So yes, I think it's not just one diet doesn't fit all, but actually each person has a very unique need and a very unique kind of culinary, gastronomic relationship to food. Yes, and I think the most important thing is to listen to your body and really eat real food, because when you're always eating those ultra-processed foods, you'll never really understand what real foods taste like and your body really becomes addicted to processed foods. So that means you can't properly connect to your body and understand what it actually craves the most. 
So actually, another trend that's quite common when it comes to women's health and food is eating according to your cycle. And this is a question I was curious to ask you. Do you also eat according to your cycle? Because I feel that's quite related to reconnecting with the earth and aligning with the natural patterns of the planet as well, since the woman's cycle is a very natural cycle. Do you eat according to your cycle? Yes, I have been. Again, it's something that I've learned to be gentle on myself with and allowing myself not to do it if, for various reasons, the circumstances are not right. But it is something that I've been, I wouldn't say religiously doing, for sure, because that's also not a healthy approach, but something that I have become very aware of and something that does play a role in when I'm choosing a meal. And I have to say that this way of eating, because I've heard some people say, what about your other members of the family? And it almost sounds like you should be cooking something so unique and different for yourself. Actually, all that food is exactly that kind of real nourishing food that happens to be good for you and your cycle. But actually, it's a universal menu that's good for everyone. That makes a lot of sense because... Any type of food that is really good for your cycle probably is very natural and it would be good for the rest of your family as well. I actually would love to have a separate conversation with you about this because it's something that I'm very fascinated by. But now let's move on to the up to some good questions. So the first question is, are there any moments where you felt stuck in your career? All the time. I'm glad that people are talking more about it because we've come from a society that's so focused on success and we have this idea that it's very linear process and then once you've reached that success whatever that means it just remains that and you just go up and you stay up for the rest of your life which is of course such a unrealistic and unhelpful notion that we set up ourselves to constantly suffer and constantly doubt ourselves and feel like we're not good enough so it's been a really difficult time I have changed careers a few times and even once I have found food as a stage in a way on which I do things. From this podcast, you can already hear that I've been doing so many different things in the sphere of food. And all of those new projects that come from a place of profound doubt and profound sense of stuckness, but somehow you push yourself out of it and you create something new, which feels very fulfilling and nourishing, and then you feel stuck again. And I'm just now starting to appreciate it and just embrace it as that's I guess that's just my pattern and that's how I flow that's exactly how I feel and I can feel that you're such a creative person who has so many different modes of expression you're interested in film food art podcasting personally I'm quite the same and I'm quite and I'm still fine-tuning my career For me, the the mediums are instead photography, podcasting, and writing, and I'm still figuring out how to put those things together. But as long as I keep checking in with myself and I feel aligned, then I'm happy to continue pursuing this. So I'm honestly on the same journey as you and also here to bounce ideas off if you need. Now let's move on to the second question, which is, what do you enjoy doing when you're up to no good? And it doesn't have to be anything illegal or bad in the proper sense of the word, but for a person like you whose career and passions are so intertwined, is there anything you do to relax and tune out? Yeah, it's a great question because that made me realize that 
I have this tendency to turn all of my hobbies into a career <laughs> and I get so <laughs> if I find a hobby that I really enjoy doing I somehow just can't keep it at that it just has to it just consumes me completely and I can't imagine doing anything else and then perhaps I reach a point where I burn out and then I move on to something different so it's a bit hard to name that thing I guess they all shift place at one point for example during the pandemic when I couldn't do my events and more active cultural physical work I shifted into studying nutrition and women's health so that kind of became my hobby then then I felt passionate about so much that I started actually turning that into a career and so yeah it just keeps shifting so I think they're all always there and it just depends on which aspect of my creative life happens to be in a place of a career or in a place of a hobby and they just shift around okay. all the time. I see. I really do see a lot of similarities between us because I tend to do that as well. I somehow like to turn all of my hobbies into a career, which sometimes is not necessarily the best for your mental health, but it's also something that makes me very happy and in flow. Going back to your hobbies, what is a hobby right now? So I think the hobby now is back to women's health and nutrition because a good friend of mine is about to have a baby and as a gift to her, I'm going to be her postpartum chef and cook for her. So I'm revisiting different nutrition books, what's good at this particular stage of postpartum and just refreshing my Chinese medicine interest and looking at those kind of books. That's my hobby at the moment, but who knows if that's gonna take me somewhere else again. Yeah. I love that. It's all, we're all on a journey, right? It doesn't matter where you go next, as long as you're passionate about it and you want to use your skills to help people. I think that itself is the most inspiring. So now moving on to the last question, can you tell me about an individual or a business who is up to some good recently? At the moment, because I'm so immersed in that field, I can't think of anyone else other than Ola Hercules. Maybe a bit predictable, but she's such an amazing person and such a force of nature. And I'm just in constant awe of how much humanity she has in her and how much general passion to good to other people she has always been like that a very passionate and helpful person very generous on a kind of small personal level with her friends and family but one now we are facing this giant global crisis and to see her step up in such a way where she becomes a friend to an entire country and helping people who reach out yes only hercules is undoubtedly a woman who is up to some good and I would love to meet her one day. So this concludes our podcast session and I just wanted to thank you so much for being so open and so honest about everything that you do, about your challenges, about the tough experiences that during pregnancy, about about the challenges you face during your career, about feeling lost on the journey, and about your relationship with food. It's so beautiful to hear someone like you talk about food in this way. And I look forward to everything you have in store, whether it's hosting more supper clubs, launching a cookbook, or diving deep into women's health and nutrition. Because I'm sure a person like you, whatever you do next, will will be able to inspire and help a lot of people. And I truly respect and appreciate you. So thank you so much, Alyssa. Thank you for being on the podcast with me. Thank you so much. I really love talking to you. 
Thank you again for listening to Up To Some Good. Any links and resources mentioned in this episode are listed in the episode description. If you want to read a written summary of this podcast, you can find it under the episode section of my website, www.claudia1ee.com. If you want to support the podcast, the best way is to subscribe to it on Spotify, Apple, or whatever platform you use to tune in. It would also mean a lot to me if you can rate and leave a review on Apple. We will be publishing weekly episodes every Thursday, so keep your ears out for new episodes. In the meantime, stay healthy and remember to do some good.